morning, church. Join me in God's Word in Zechariah chapter 1, uh, and we'll be in chapter 2 a little bit today. It is a great honor to be with you. I'm thankful that you're with us. Guests, thank you for being with us today. I got to meet some after the first service, and we had such a good service uh, in our uh, lobby here. I got to meet some in our new members area and potential uh, guest areas and different things there, so we're thankful uh, for that. Pray for uh, Jacob and Kelly. Kelly uh, Freeman, Jacob typically plays our piano the last few weeks. Um, uh, Kelly's been having some health issues, and uh, this past week she had her appendix removed, and so she's been having some things. So pray that God would, uh, of course, heal her and touch her. We've got others that have been sick. Brother Will Howe, uh, one of our men, um, di- uh, he dislocated his hip, and I think they had to put that back in place. And so He's uh, been gone. We have several others that are, of course, sick today and uh, having surgeries and different things like that. But we're thankful for those that step in and, and help out there. Second, or, or Zechariah chapter 1 in the first and second chapter. If you remember last week, and you can always go back onto uh, the Facebook or to the uh, YouTube, and you can watch some of the prior messages Zechariah is a book, but if you come in the middle of Zechariah, or at least if you miss a couple weeks, sometimes you can find yourself uh, a little lost because Zechariah is, is a current, it's a relevant book for today. You'll see that in just a moment, but it's also a prophetic book. Sometimes you're not sure if you're in the current situation or if you are in the millennial reign of Christ, and I'll try to uh, help you with that. Last week, though, uh, Zechariah has the first of eight night visions the, the first vision was that Zechariah uh, seen riders, uh, horse, um, horsemen, uh, one on a red horse, the others on different like white horses and, and uh, speckled horses or spotted horses or a brownish color. And all those horses, of course, represented things, but the red horse represented war and, and judgment. And then uh, the rider of that horse is the angel of the Lord. That is a pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. He is there in, among the Bible sets in the myrtle trees in a ravine, and he comes with great words of encouragement. He's promised to protect Israel. He's promised to broaden Israel. He's promised to do these things, uh, and, and he's done it in a time already, but he's also going to do it. He's fulfilled some of these things already, and he's with them in their lowest state. He's with them among the myrtles. The myrtles represented a lowly tree, not a cedar of Lebanon, but a lowly tree. And he's there among them as they have been dominated by Gentile kings. Remember, 50,000 of the Jews have come from Babylon back to uh, a ravaged Jerusalem. The walls have been crumbled. The temple has been destroyed. You can read about a lot of these things in Nehemiah. You can read some about Haggai. These were times where they were not very good for Israel. And Israel had suffered greatly. And and this night vision that has been given by God to Zechariah gives a word of encouragement that I have not forgotten about you. I am with you. My presence is with you, Israel. I have not forgotten about you. I love you. Well, then we join in verse number 18 of chapter number 1. And a second vision is given to Zechariah. He said this in verse 18, Then lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said unto the angel that talked with me, 
What be these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four carpenters. Then I then said I, what come these to do? And he spake, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so no man did lift up his head. But these are come to fray them, or to trouble them, or torment them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah, to scatter it. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to preach. I pray that, uh, Lord, through the power of the Spirit of God, that you'll help me uh, convey the text to relay it to us exactly the way that you want it in context, word upon word and line upon line. I pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to preach a message this morning on God, our protector and our provider. When you look at the church of Jesus Christ, whether in history or in our own present day, the very fact of its existence is strong evidence of both God's existence and the truth of Jesus' words. He promised, he said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. It will not overthrow, it will not overpower it in Matthew chapter 16. And throughout history, the church has been battered by storms of persecution. The church has been uh, in scandalous weaknesses within and have been times and places of evil tyrants that tried to eliminate the church, tried to eliminate Christianity. False teachers have crept in spreading destructive heresies that have led many astray. There have also been Christians leaders who have fallen into horrible sin, bringing shame to the name of Christ. The modern church in America is rifled with false teaching and moral scandals, and yet God's remnant that has been faithful to him has been faithful in spite of all these problems, and the church of Jesus Christ is still going forward. Now, uh, not only the church, but the existence of the Jewish people and their promise uh, promised by God uh, in the promised land. In Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham that he would make him a great nation and bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, God promised to bless those. And by the way, this would be a good thing for America to read right now, is that God promised to bless those that bless Israel. That is God's chosen people. That is a promise that God has not went back on. That's a promise that God has not changed his mind on. Those are, ho- those are his chosen people, and America should do best to defend God's chosen people. Amen. God's chosen people. I mean, they're under attack right now, and, and that's a people that you just don't mess with. You know, it's, it's like poking a dog that you know will bite, and what's happened is they poke the dog, and the dog's woke up, and the dog's coming after them, and now everybody's crying, oh, stop, oh, stop. Well, you shouldn't have poked the bear, right? And, and that's the same thing with America. Hey, we ought to get in there and say, you know what? We're, we're going to help with this. We're going to pray for you. We're going to send aid to you. We're going to help in any way. Hey, we shouldn't be mealy mouthed about that. We ought to be bold about that. Why? Because God has promised all the way back in Genesis 12 that he would bless those who bless, uh, or he would bless those who bless them and then would curse those that curse them. The Holocaust under Hitler uh, and the present Islamic terrorism, even today, 
stem from intense hatred of the Jew. We're going, by the way, what we're seeing in, across the world could very well happen on our soil because of where we stand with the Jew. Millions of Muslims hate the United States. They cheered when Al-Qaeda hit our nation in 2001, September 11, 2001. They cheered when, uh, you can even see the video, even recent days, they're cheering death to America. Why? Because America stands with Israel. And by the way, we ought to elect a president who says that we're going to stand with Israel. Amen. And yet, Scripture predicts a glorious future for the Jewish people. In Romans chapter 11, you can read about that in verses 25. There's a glorious future for the nation of Israel. When you come to our text, such as these verses that we're going to read today and examine today, commentators, they tend to go in two different directions. They either spiritualize the promise to Israel here by applying them exclusively to the church or they apply them exclusively to Israel without any mentioning of application to the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I was pleased to find that one of my favorite preachers of the past, Charles Spurgeon, he first acknowledged the application to the future of Israel before applying it to the church. I believe that these uh, applications and these promises will yet be fulfilled for Israel and God's chosen people. We, we find verse Verses 11 and 12 of Zechariah chapter 2 will be fulfilled literally when Jesus Christ returns to reign on David's throne in Jerusalem. And at the same time, if we only applied it to Israel, not to God's church today, we would miss a whole host of great promises that God has given to encourage His people in the time of trouble. Now keep in mind that both of these applications in mind, uh, we, as we examine Examine the second and the third night or the third night vision of Zechariah. Together they will show us that God will bless and defend his chosen people in his time. Now let's look at the second vision in verse number 18 of Zechariah chapter 1. The Bible says, Then lifted I up mine eyes, and I saw and behold four horns. And said unto the angel that talked with me, What be these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four carpenters. Then said I, What come these to do? And he spake, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. And, but these are come to fray them, and to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which have lifted up the horn over the land of Judah, to scatter it. The second vision, it amplifies in verse number 15. He said, I'm very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. God expresses his anger toward the nations that have gone too far in punishing Israel for their sins. The third vision, which we'll get to in just a moment, it amplifies in verses 16 and 17, where God reassures this, his people about his compassion and his future for blessing them them and especially sending them a Messiah, which would come in the New Testament. Both visions assume God's absolute sovereignty and right to cast off certain nations in order to establish his 
chosen people according to his purpose. The first thing that I want to give you this morning in regard to the second vision is this. God defends his people by punishing the wicked and uh, the wicked and who oppresses them. Notice in verse number 18, Zechariah sees four horns. Do you see that with me? Four horns. Now, we don't know what type of animal. It's not specified in verse 18 in chapter 1 what animal this is. It could have been a wild ox. It could have been a bull or a ram or some goat, but some maybe some combination of these. We're not sure, but it doesn't matter because the focus is not on the horn of the animal, but in biblical imagery, the horn symbolizes strength and power, especially the nations of Gentile kings. I don't have time to go there, but if you want to go over to Daniel chapter uh, 7 or uh, Psalm 75 or Jeremiah chapter 48 or Daniel chapter 8, you can see horns that are mentioned in the Old Testament and they represented power and authority. And so Zechariah here in the second vision, he asked the angel what these horns mean. And the angel says, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. These are the horns. You can think about a compass, the north, the south, the east, and the west. You, you can see that these have come to afflict. They are oppressors of Israel. He said, that's exactly what this means. Now, commentators differ on the identification. Some believe that a horn uh, represent. they actually put America in one of those horns, which I've never seen in Scripture where America's even mentioned in Scripture or even alluded to. Some maybe uh, think otherwise, but I don't see that, especially in end-time prophecy. What I do believe that these horns represent is uh, Medo-Persia, Babylon, Greece, and Rome. Matter of fact, in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, we see the last two powers were still future in Zechariah's day. Now, hang on with me. We're going somewhere real quick. These last four are the four major powers. These four horns are the major powers that dominate the Jews during the time of the Gentiles. All of a sudden, in the middle of this vision, Verse number 20, there shows four carpenters or craftsmen. Now, four horns are represented, four enemies of Israel. Then four craftsmen show up or four carpenters show up. So for every enemy of God, God raises up a carpenter. God raises up a, a craftsman. Now notice what happens. Then said I, what come these to do or why are they here? And he spake, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head, but these are come to fray them, or to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah, to scatter it. So the Lord shows these four craftsmen, and the prophet says, What are they here for? And the Lord says, They're here to come to terrify and to throw down the four horns that have scattered Judah abroad. What can we learn from this second vision? We can learn that God's people should expect 
severe hardships and opposition simply because they are his people in an evil world. You say, what do you mean? Well, whether it is the nation of Israel or whether it's the church, if you stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be opposition sometimes ahead of you, behind you, to the sides of you. Everywhere you look, it says, well, I've stood for the Lord Jesus in my school. I've stood in my house. I've stood at my job. And it seems like every time I stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, I face opposition. Well, I have good news for you. If you stand against opposition and you stand for the Lord, you're doing the right thing. And God's promised to help you. And that's where we find that in Zechariah chapter 1. God has raised up some craftsmen to terrorize and disperse these horns that have got on uh, Israel and have oppressed Israel. Can I say, we're in a battle uh, here in, in, in this time. This is no time to relax. This is no time to get under the shade trees of life and said, I'm just going to sit here and wait till Jesus comes and do nothing. No, uh, as Paul told the church of Ephesus, now is the time to gird yourself up, put on the whole armor of God that ye may withstand in the evil day and put it on. Why? We are in a battle. I don't know if I need to remind you this morning, but we face spiritual warfare every day. Why do we face spiritual warfare? Because we fight an enemy, the flesh, the world, and the devil. All of the things that's going on in the world today is a satanic system fighting good versus evil. We will not rest until one day we get to heaven. Amen. We'll rest for all eternity, but until then, let's gird up. Let's put on the whole armor of God. And you notice the whole armor of God has no protection for the back because we're not to run and retreat. We are to go forward. As God said, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail. We are not on the defense. My friend, we are on the offense. And we are to take the gospel into the world, whether they like it or not. The church should stand for something. And by the way, you know this. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. So we should stand. Warfare requires a certain mindset. You don't go into battle with a casual manner. We've got two boys that are connected to our church right now has been deployed in the last few days to Israel. We're going to see more and more deployed to Israel from our nation, boys that represent the United States of America going to the aid of another nation. And I thank the Lord for the men and women that, that, that serve in our United States. But let me just tell you something. Those that are being deployed right now, I promise you when they get that phone call from their general or their commander and they say you're going over here and they give specific orders, I promise you that they're not over there thinking this is a casual thing. They're watching the news like you are. They're hearing all the things probably more so than we are. They know the danger. Listen to me. Why cannot we as a Christian gird ourselves up and go into warfare every day with the same mentality that I'm not here to rest. I'm not here to twiddle my thumbs. I'm here to serve the Lord and I'm going to have some fiery darts launched at me. I'm going to have some people oppose me. But hey, be of good cheer. He said, let's not be of fear for I have overcome the world. Hey, we got one on our side that is promise to defend us. And we understand that we are in a warfare. Expect the enemy to oppose you if you are part of God's people. The world system does not like what we're doing in here today. 
They just don't like it that we come together as a church and we preach the word and we oppose sin and we stand for righteousness. This is not very popular in today's age. Uh, by the way, even in some churches, they have watered down the word and they've watered down the scripture so much that you're not even sure what they're saying. My friend, listen to me. If there's ever been a time in history that we should be clear and we should preach the word, it's right now. Why? Because it equips you as a believer. The second thing that I see from this second vision is this. Know that God will be a strong defender of his people and he will ultimately punish the wicked in his time. Now, this is exactly what this second vision is portraying. Horns that are raised up against Israel and all of a sudden God raises up four craftsmen to obliterate the horns or the enemies of God. If you notice, for each horn, God raised up a craftsman to throw it down. In some cases, his people suffered for years before he brought a deliverer. It hasn't always been a desired timetable. Israel has been oppressed through the years and it seemed like it would never end. But all of a sudden, God would raise up a deliverer. If you read the Old Testament, sometimes they would suffer. And by the way, God sometimes allows the enemy to come in because of chastisement. We in America, we, we've known that. And by the way, we're going to see more of that. If you don't think the enemy's here already, my friend, you've been sleeping. You can't have open borders and not have an enemy inside the camp. You can't let thousands of people come in every day, every day, and not have somebody that come in that hates America. And willing to do something. Listen, there's no telling what's come over here in the last year or two years or three years. There's no telling what's being planned behind closed doors. You understand this. Sometimes God allows the enemy. I believe this, this open border thing is the judgment of God. And by the way, when God's judgment, no man can stop it. You say, well, all we got to do is build a wall. They'll come in another way. In 2001, they, they hijacked planes. We never thought that would happen. They hijacked planes and ran them into our, our financial system and ran them into a field and trying to go to the White House or the Capitol building and, and then one into our Pentagon, which represents our military. Hey, what was God doing? He was trying to wake a nation up. Is he going to do it again? You better believe it. America wake up, a nation. Listen, the best thing we can do as Christians is fall on our knees and look up into the sky and say, God, have mercy on us. We have sinned. We have done wrong. God, this is no time to play. This is no time to do. Hey, we have sinned against God. God, forgive us. Hey, he's not talking to the unbeliever. He's talking to the church of Jesus Christ. We have, we have so distanced ourselves away from the Lord. The church of Jesus Christ needs to repent and come back to the Lord. By the way, that was the message Zechariah was preaching to the Jew. Return to the Lord, notice this, and he will return to you. That's revival. That's a promise that the Lord has given. His people have suffered, but perhaps you still wonder, why does God permit this kind of strong opposition against his people? There can be multiple reasons. The first reason, I believe, is God uses opposition, as I said earlier, to chasten his people for their worldliness and their unfaithfulness. The Babylonian captivity was a direct result of Israel's many years of disobedience 
to God. Another reason sometimes God allows opposition that we uh, they, to come in is to teach us that we cannot prevail in our own strength. We are forced to rely on God alone. Can I say that America probably has the greatest military in the world? What I mean by that is we have some wonderful brave men and brave women. I know the last 10 years or so our, our government has went woke and our military's kind of followed in that order. I still believe we have a great military. I still believe we have great generals and great commanders. I believe we have some of the greatest intelligence and the greatest uh, uh, modern technology. Uh, I'm talking about weaponry that can ever be in a nation. We have all of that, but can I tell you something? Without God, we are nothing. And America says, well, we've got the greatest advanced weaponry in the world. Can I say this? If God is not on our side, hey, we're in trouble. It don't matter how many drones you have, how many jets you have, how many missiles that you've got, atomic bombs. It doesn't matter how many soldiers you have and the latest gadgets and, and gizmos that you have to fight the enemy. If God is not on your side, you are in trouble. And God often reminds us that with the enemy comes in, that we need the Lord. Oh, listen, it hits you sometimes out of nowhere. And yet we need to remind our, ourselves that God is our foundation. I love the old hymn, How Firm a Foundation. The, one of the verses says, The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Hey, often uh, whatever the form of opposition, remember that it will not ultimately prevail. God will judge all who oppose his people. Here's the second thing about our text this morning. As we come into a new vision, the second vision was four horns and four craftsmen. The horns represent the enemies of God. The craftsmen represent the defenders of God. We come to the second chapter. Look with me in verse number one. Here's what Zechariah said. I lifted up mine eyes again and looked and behold a man with a measuring line in his hands. Then said I, whither thou goest, or whither goest thou? And he said unto me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof, and what is the length thereof. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him. And said unto him, Run, speak this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall inhabit as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire around about and will be the glory in the midst of her. That brings me to the second conclusion about our text in this third vision is this. God will bless his people and be a defender and a provider by sending his Messiah. This is a promise that God made to Israel that God is going to provide and going to send a Messiah, one that's going to come and bless Jerusalem and also <clears throat> going to take care of the enemies of God. I want you to notice the vision that is presented in the first five verses 
of Zechariah chapter 2. In this third vision, Zechariah sees a man with a measure tape or a measuring line who is going about measuring Jerusalem. Many commentators think that this man is the angel of the Lord. I believe that myself. I believe this is the same angel that we see in chapter number 1, the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate Christ. And he's measuring Jerusalem. Now the text doesn't identify him, so we can't be too dogmatic about it. But another angel meets Zechariah, an interpreting angel, and tells him to run and say to the young man, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls and the multitude of men and cattle within it. So here's good news to Jerusalem. This is a prophecy. Stay with me. This is a prophecy. He says, hey, I'm measuring out the height and the width of Jerusalem, meaning that he's measuring it out to see how big he's going to make it. He calls it a city without walls. What's that mean? He said, there's going to be so many people in this city. I'm going to send so many folks back to Jerusalem that the walls itself will not be able to contain all the people that is within. He also said, there's going to be abundance of cattle. What's that mean? I'm going to bless the nation of Israel. I'm going to bless Jerusalem with the abundance of food and and provision. He said, I'm just going to give you thought uh, for, for uh, I'm going to give you blessings and it's going to be a city. This word from the Lord, it means I will be a wall of fire. Now notice what he says in verse five. I saith the Lord will be under her a wall of fire round about and will be the glory in the midst of her. This wall of fire recalls the pillar of fire that God was in Exodus chapter 14. You remember God gave the Israelites who really had no weaponry. They were marching in the wilderness for 40 years and they're walking, uh, no doubt had enemies. We read about that in the Old Testament, enemies that would come. And God said to his people, I'm going to make a, a pillar of fire by night. What was that? A pillar of fire was to protect against the enemy. He's using the same analogy here in verse number five. He said, I will make a wall of fire round about and notice, and will be the glory in her midst. So God has provided protection around this place. I'm a wall of fire. He noticed, notice the next thing he says. And, and by the way, a shepherd in the Jewish days, they would put a wall of fire sometimes at night when the wolves were real bad. They would put a fire on the corner of each uh, place that they had their, their fold, their, their sheep fold, and it would protect them because wolves and other things were not going to come in for fire. It would keep the sheep in and it would keep the predators out. And he says, I'm going to be that wall. I'm going to protect you, Israel. Don't worry about it. God has got your back. God has your side. But he says something even better than that on the tail end of that verse. And I will be the glory in her, in the midst of her. Now, what does that mean? I will be the glory in the midst of her. God also promises to be the glory, the Shekinah glory. Now, listen to this. If you were to go all the way back to Ezekiel, the glory of God left Israel because of their sin. In Ezekiel chapter number 10, I, I don't have time to, to, to really go back and, and study that out, but, but Ezekiel says the glory has departed because of the nation's sin. 
But now he says in Zechariah chapter 2 that the glory will be in the midst. What glory is that? That is the Shekinah glory. He said what once has departed is now, stay with me, it's coming back. And by the way, that is so encouraging. The glory left the nation of Israel. The joy of God, the presence of God had been gone for so long. They had been in captivity. They had been wandering. They had been lost. But now the glory is coming back. Church, this gives me a good word this morning that the glory of God can depart from the house of God. The glory can depart from the church. If we're not careful, all the things that God is doing here, the presence of the Spirit of God. All those things are good right now, but it only takes a little sin to run the Spirit of God out. And before you know it, Ichabod is written over the door. The glory hath departed. My friend, listen, let's keep the glory in the church. Let's keep the glory around here. Hey, sinners being saved, folks being baptized, hey, sinners and, and saved say folks being discipled. Hey, isn't it wonderful to see what God is doing, growing as church and the spirit of God is here and folks moving here and getting saved and discipled. Hey, that's wonderful. All it takes is sin to run them out. The glory should be here and God has promised his people that the glory would come and would illuminate just like he promised in Revelation chapter 21. But even in its ultimate fulfillment that awaits the future of Israel, it all hinges on one word. Church, listen. It hinges on the word obedience. If you and I are obedient to the word, he's promised to protect us with a wall of fire and to put his glory in the midst. But the moment that we become disobedient to the things of God and we do it our way, we'll be just like Israel. The glory will leave, the wall of fire will go out, and the enemy comes in. What a word. Both promises are related to our obedience. If we want God to be the wall of fire around about us and the glory to be in our midst, we must walk with the Lord in holiness every day, each day. Here's the vision that has been presented, but then a vision applied. So here's the message. All of that is kind of laying out what you know about the visions Sometimes if you're just reading Zechariah, you are so lost. You're like, what in the world does all this mean? I hope that I'm explaining to you that this is very relevant today. But I want you to see what the application is because it begins in verse number 6. He says, ho, ho, and this is not Santa Claus. Every time I read that, I think about Christmas though. Come forth, and notice the next word, and flee. Now underline that. And flee from the land of the north. Who's the land of the north? That's the, Bab that's the Babylonians. What they would do, they were really located to the east of Jerusalem. But what Bab Babylon would do is they would go up and they would cross into the Euphrates River and run along the Euphrates River and drop down. So God always referred to Babylon as the enemy to the north or the land to the north. And he says in verse number six, Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, saith the Lord. Deliver thyself, O, Lord, o Zion. 
that dwelleth with the daughter of Babylon. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me. I believe that's the Messiah. Unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. And behold, I will shake mine hand upon them, for they shall be a spoil to their servants. And ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. He tells us in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 to flee Babylon. Get out of Babylon. Get out of there. Now, some had already fleed, but this command took obedience, and faith. Babylon was then prospering. Babylon had all the modern conveniences. It had jobs, it had culture, it had comfort, but Babylon had it all. Jerusalem was just a heap of rubble and there were no walls of defense, hostile neighbors on every side. And God says to his people, I'm going to bless Jerusalem and judge Babylon. So you best get out, you best flee Babylon and while you can. And then there comes verse eight. He says in verse 8, after the glory hath he sent me, I believe that's the Messiah, unto the nations which spoiled you or the ones that have oppressed you. God hath sent me to the nations to deal with them. And then he says a statement, for he that toucheth you touches the apple of his eye. This is where we call the nation of Israel the apple of his eye. What's the apple of the eye? The apple is the pupil. It is the very center of the most tender part of your body, the eye. It's the protected eye. God put the eyelids. He gave us where we're constantly shielding ourselves from eye damage. We sometimes wear glasses when we're working. Why? Because we don't want anything to fly up into our eye and hurt our eyesight. Sometimes we take eyesight very, very uh, we, we should take it very seriously, but we should never take it for granted. Why? Because it is wonderful to have our eyesight. What's God saying? He's saying, I'm sending the Messiah to deal with those who have spoiled the nation. This is prophetic. I'm going to deal with them. I'm going to deal with Babylon. I'm going to deal with uh, Greece and Rome and Medo-Persia. I'm going to deal with these nations that rise up against you because they have touched the pupil of my eye. I'm going to deal with them because I have chose you. I love you. And anybody that rises up against you, Israel, they've touched the eye of God is what he's saying. And I believe that the command to flee Babylon is one of, of value, great value to us. In Scripture, Babylon, it represents the world system. If you go over to Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 18, Revelation 17 represents spiritual Babylon. God is going to overthrow, as he calls, the great whore of Revelation, the one that has scattered abroad, the one that has caused a great suffering among his people. In Revelation 17, he's going to scatter them, obliterate them. In Revelation chapter 18, God is going to deal with commercial Babylon. Well, what is commercial Babylon? Babylon is the world system. God is going to overthrow in the last day. And by the way, when he overthrows, there's going to be a great rejoicing. If you look at verse 20, there's going to be a great rejoicing in, in, in Revelation 18, 20 of God's people who are excited that God has overthrown Babylon. And then we're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb while all this is going on. But you understand this, 
Babylon's future does not look very good. God's people, as he's called it, the apple of his eye, is looking more promising each day. And by the way, we're seeing some of this fulfilled right now. And so he's promised to overthrow the enemies of the Lord. May I ask you this morning, if Babylon represents the world system and Jerusalem represents the apple of his eye or God's people, which which are you in? There's a lot of Christians today who are dwelling in Babylon. Amen. You're fascinated with the money. You're fascinated with the toys, with the gadgets, with all the career. You're fascinated with it. You live for it. And God said one day all that's going to be obliterated and just wiped out. And here's what's going to last. Eternal treasures. People are so fascinated with all of this. And by the way, one day all that can go away, right? This will last forever. And we got Christians that are non-effective, Christians that are living over here in Babylon. Can I ask you, which are you in? Which side are you on? I'm not asking, are you lost or saved? I, 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 can, I can ask that here in just a little bit. And if you're lost this morning, we can help you with that and show you in Scripture Christ loves you and died for you and shed his blood for you. And while you have time, won't you come to him? But a lot of you in here are saved, but you're dwelling over here. And you're non-effective. Listen, you're not an effective Christian. You're witness. You haven't witnessed to nobody in a while. You haven't prayed in a while. You haven't done anything for God in a while. Wow, because you're dwelling in Babylon. And God says, flee Babylon. What else does he say? He says here in verse 10, look at it. In verse 10, he says, sing and rejoice. Not only should we flee Babylon, but we ought to sing and rejoice. Why? He tells the daughters of Zion... For lo, I am come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. Now in Revelation 18, verse 20, why are the people of God singing? Because Babylon has been destroyed. Church, don't miss this. In Zechariah chapter 2, why are the people of God instructed to sing? Not because of Babylon being destroyed. He says, just flee it. He's saying, because I am coming. Hold on a second. We should be singing and rejoicing because we know the Messiah is coming back. Boy, that's a good thought. That's good preaching even if I am doing it. I'm enjoying it this morning. We should not be singing because of the destruction. We'll we'll rejoice and sing. I think we'll be eating our meal in heaven. I believe this all my heart. I believe we're going to be eating at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and there's going to be a big announcement that Babylon has been destroyed. I believe there's going to be a great joyful sound and shout. I believe we're going to sing together. We're going to drop our forks and our spoons, and we're going to clap and praise the Lord. The world has been destroyed as we know it. Death and hell and all the things of the world is going to be destroyed. Thank you, Jesus. But right now, guess what our song ought to be? We know that you're coming back and we're looking forward to your coming. Oh, we're coming. Boy, the songs of his return, the songs of Jesus Christ coming back. And that's exactly what he's commanding the people to do. He says, uh, and it's a prophetic thing. He says, I will dwell in the midst of thee. Jesus is going to come through the eastern gate. He's going to come into the temple of God. He's going to sit down on David's throne. He's going to rule and reign. And guess what that ought to cause us to do? It ought to cause us to sing for joy. Hey, and by the way, if you can't sing now, you're going to have trouble singing then, right? Sing for joy. 
And while there is no good reason to deny the future fulfillments of God's promise in the millennial kingdom, we also we should apply that to the church today, meaning God's purpose is to be glorified among the nations of the Lord. We come in here today to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, the Christ, the Savior of the world. We should not come in here to lift up man. We should come up here to lift up the Lord. Amen. And you should leave today not encouraged by what man has done. You should leave here today encouraged by what God has done. Amen. Here's the third and final thing is he says this in verse 13. Let me just read verse 11 to you. These are going to be fulfilled. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of thee and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. This is literally when Jesus is sitting on the throne of David. And the Lord shall inherit Judah and notice his portion. Look at this verse in the holy land. The only place in scripture that it's referred to as the holy land is right here. We call it the holy land today. It's, uh, hey, you going to the holy land? I've been to the holy land several times. I enjoy it. The reason we call it the holy land is because Zechariah, here God, the Lord shall inherit Judah in his portion during the millennial reign and it will be called the holy land. I'm not so sure that it's holy today but it will be. Why? Because they'll have a king sitting on the throne. I'm not sure, you know, we might get a little ahead of ourselves and call it the Holy Land today, though it is a special place. It's God's chosen place. Hold on a second. He says prophetically that he shall inherit Judah in his portion in the Holy Land and shall choose Jerusalem again. It's going to be holy, holy all the way through the millennial reign. But notice verse 13. Be silent, O all flesh. Now, he addresses in verse number 6, the people of Israel, flee Babylon. He then says, sing, O daughters of Zion. Again, Israel. But then in verse 13, he says, be silent, O All flesh. Well, all flesh, that means everybody. That's not just the Jews. That's also the enemies. That's the Gentile kings. That's the four horns. He's saying, boy, church, don't miss this. He's saying, now I need you to be silent before the Lord. Notice what else he says. He says, before the Lord, for he has raised up. He has raised up. What's raised up mean? The Lord is stirred up. He is aroused right now. And notice what he says, out of his holy habitation. So what's happening? Zechariah sees this night vision. He says, let me tell you something. The Lord has a plan for Jerusalem. The Lord came out with a measuring stick. He's going to bless the, he's going to oppress the nations that have oppressed Israel. He's going to take these craftsmen. They're going to obliterate uh, what that looks like. They're going to obliterate the the enemies of God. He's going to bless Jerusalem. They're not even going to have the walls because he said, I've built a wall of fire. The Shekinah glory of God is coming back. He said, so here's what I need you to do before I judge the nations. I need you to flee Babylon. I need you to sing for joy because I'm coming back. And I need you to be still and be ready 
be silent because the whole earth is about to see the judgment of God. God is stirred up. Now let me say this word to you. And I believe this application applies to us. I believe God is stirred up today. I really do. You cannot help but look on the horizon and see that something is coming. Can, it, can I get an amen? I don't care if you know nothing about the Scripture. I don't care if you know nothing about, I mean, if you say, Pastor, I don't know much about the Scripture, I don't know much about what, but I can promise you this, there is something happening in the world today. And the Bible says in verse 13 to Zechariah, I am stirred up, I have been raised up, out of his holy habitation. What's God about to do? Well, you're going to see in Zechariah 3 what he's about to do. Let me say, while we have time, believer, listen to me. Believers, get out of Babylon. Forsake the world. Love not the world or anything in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So you cannot love the world, church. You cannot love the world. You can't have one foot in the world, and one foot in the Lord Jesus Christ. You choose one or the other. Many of people in the church, they're trying to straddle the world and straddle the church, and they're trying to live for one or the other. They're trying to do this and do that, but yet go to church on Sunday and say, I'm a child of God. You can't do that. Choose you this day whom ye will serve. Choose it. Say, you know what? I'm leaving Babylon. I'm getting back to God, and then I'm going to start being, I'm going to sing for joy because I know Christ is coming. The closer we get to the day of the Lord, the closer we get to the rapture. Now, they're two different events. The closer we get to Christmas, the closer we get to Thanksgiving. Often Thanksgiving gets overlooked. Nobody talks much about Thanksgiving. People putting up the Christmas trees already. I've seen some elbows. Some of you already looking for Christmas stuff. And hold on a second. Oh, Thanksgiving. I'm talking about we get to sit around the table and eat turkey and be thankful just to be here and what God's done with us and, and what God is doing and being thankful for all the... Thanksgiving is a great holiday, but guess what? It takes a back seat to Christmas. There's nobody writing songs about Thanksgiving. There's nobody singing Thanksgiving carols. But the closer we get to Christmas, the closer we get to Thanksgiving. Now, we're preaching about the second coming of Christ, but the closer we preach about the second coming of Christ, the closer we get to the rapture, the rapture of the church. One day we'll be here, and the next day we're gone. One day there'll be people that try to show up on the property on a Sunday morning. They're going to be shaking the doors. There's nobody going to be here. Maybe a couple deacons. <laughs> Nobody's going to be here. The doors will be locked. No parking lot, no cars. They're going to be wondering what's going on. They'll say, well, surely they didn't cancel church. They never canceled church. They always have church. What's going to happen? The rapture of the church. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be called up together in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Are you ready? Can I say this? 
be quiet, be silent before the Lord. Why? Because He's getting stirred up. Let's fall on our faces before God and say, God, what is it in these last days you need me to do? What is it, Lord? I need to get right with God. Maybe you're in here today and you need to get right with God. Maybe you've been distant from the Lord. Get right with Him today. Get your foot out of Egypt. Get your foot out of Babylon and come to the Lord. If you're saved, maybe you need to get that prayer life stirred up. If you're lost, when I say lost, I mean you do not know Christ as your Savior. Listen to me. Get saved while you have time. One day there will be no time. There'll be no time. Why? Because you've heard the truth. You heard it today. If you're sitting in here and you're wondering if you're saved, doubting, confused, we'd love to show you in God's Word how you can know for sure today that you're saved. 